This is lecture number five of Joseph Goldstein's course on Essential Buddhism at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado on July 30th, 1974. One person might describe the path that's just in front of us right now. You know, watch out for that step and, and go around the turn over there. Okay. One person might describe the view of the peak. Right? I don't know how it looks up there in the clouds or wherever. That description is going to be totally different than the description of the boulder that we have to avoid right in front of us. Right? Some person might describe what one does when one reaches the peak. Oh, one dances around the top and sings songs or whatever one does. That description is completely different than, than both the vision of the top and also the, the steps along the path. All the descriptions are merely different aspects of this journey. We all have to walk up the path, have the vision of the top, and then express it in whichever way we do. Right? But we read or hear of different descriptions which are just relaying different aspects of this journey, and we think that they're different, right? There's one path to the top, and once we're there, <coughs> it will unfold as a will what we do. I understand the practice of zazen, it leads very much to a moment-to-moment -moment awareness. As with all practices of mindfulness, it starts with a, with a, uh, the development of a certain amount of concentration, right? Unless the mind is concentrated somewhat, you cannot be very mindful, you cannot develop insight. That's why, like in this technique, we start with the rise and falling or the in-out breath. That's a concentration technique, to just stay on that object. After a certain minimal level of one-pointedness, the mind has the ability to sit back and just observe the flow. And I think that's what's meant in Zen. There are a lot of Zen stories about the development of moment-to-moment -moment Zen. Moment-to-moment right? -moment awareness of what's happening. There may be more of an emphasis in the beginning on the concentration aspect, and that is a valid technique. You know, you can, you can approach the development of wisdom by developing samadhi first and then applying it to the development of insight. You can do them simultaneously. It depends. There are different approaches, all equally valid. When just sitting is properly understood, that is exactly insight meditation. That's exactly what vipassana comes to. As the mindfulness develops, it's just sitting. You're not doing anything. You're just being with the flow of mind-body with attentiveness. Right? Just sitting. Munindra, who is one of my teachers, he very often said, 
in discussing different techniques of insight. You don't want to do anything, it's okay. Just sit with awareness. Right? If you sit without the mind wandering, just sit, that's all. Be aware, everything's going to unfold. Right? That's a hard technique because, because most of us cannot just sit without our minds wandering. So the various techniques have, have evolved to get to that very place. Why don't we keep questions till after the talk? There, <coughs> there, is, there is very much suffering in the world. Every day there are many millions of people who do not have enough food who do not have proper shelter, who are experiencing extremes of heat and of cold, of very oppressive living conditions. There are a lot of people in hospitals whose bodies are filled with pain and unable to avoid that pain and many more people in the world who do not even have facilities with which to deal with illness. Many people who, as illness, as illness comes to the body, just must deal with it as best they can in very primitive circumstances. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering involved in disease and illness of the body as the body begins to decay. There is a lot of pain and suffering involved in the conflicts, the violent conflicts between people, between countries, in situations of war or fighting. Very many people who are, who are helpless in the hands of their enemies, people who want to simply inflict more and more pain upon them, helpless in that situation. There is so much pain involved in giving birth, both to the mother and the child. A lot of pain as the, as the body begins to decay, as the body begins to fall apart, as it inevitably must. There's a lot of pain and suffering in old age, a very decrepit, invalid body. There's pain and anxiety and depression and anger and lust, and worry, and frustration. Our minds are, in, are, are liable to this kind of suffering. There's suffering when we're joined with things we don't like, when unpleasant circumstances <coughs> arise and we don't like them. There's a great deal of suffering involved. 
and there's a lot of suffering when we are separated from those people or situations or ideas for which we have a great love and attachment trying desperately to hold on to something which is disappearing a lot of pain a lot of suffering death is suffering the the breaking up of the elements of the body the four primary elements described as earth air fire and water are called the great elements great in their destructive power as long as they are in relative harmony and balance we experience a certain ease of the body it is a very temporary impermanent state of balance a very precarious balance and throughout our lives these, the balance of these elements is often disturbed and in death they finally become so imbalanced they break apart it's these very elements in our body the great destructive power in them the same elements which are responsible for the arising and explosion of the earth the sun the solar system whole galaxies these same primary elements of matter have the potential strength and destructiveness to destroy the physical universe that's what we're made of that's what this body is these the, the same material elements and for a very brief time indeed we enjoy a balanced state always leading always going in the direction of more and more imbalance unequilibrium destructiveness the body is going to die there is no way that having taken birth we are not going to die we are going to end as corpses a very painful situation one that is very full of suffering this is the human condition and the human the human plane is one of the happy places of existence one of the happy destinies of fortunate rebirth there are planes of existence which are filled with even much greater suffering which arise as the as the result of our own unwholesome deeds we create for ourselves the hell worlds and the the hungry ghost realms and all the lower worlds of suffering they're not created by any divine being who who casts people down into them they are created by our own states of mind our own unwholesome mind <coughs> this is expressed very clearly in our language when we say a person is burning up with anger that is literally happening we're burning every time we every time we get angry a person is burning with desire burning here and now and creating worlds of burning a lot of pain a lot of suffering
There was no beginning to this wandering on in samsara. Endless repetition of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts, day after day after day, endlessly tossed about in this whirlwind. We are enjoying some extraordinarily good karma in our present situation just now, in comfortable surroundings, a fair degree of ease of body, the chance to practice the Dharma. But it is like a very small island in a very turbulent ocean. It's a spot of calm in a, in a great whirlwind of samsaric forces, of greed and of hatred and delusion, filled potentially with enormous pain, enormous suffering. It's said that once one has taken rebirth in a lower plane of existence, how extraordinarily difficult it is to again have the opportunity of a human rebirth. And the example is given of a blind turtle who lives at the bottom of a vast ocean. And on the surface of the ocean is a, is a wooden ring, a yoke of wood, just floating, tossed about by the wind and the waves. And this blind turtle surfaces once every hundred years. The odds that that turtle will surface just at the spot where that wooden yoke is and, and place his head through that wooden ring, the odds of that happening are greater than the chances of someone who has taken birth in a lower world having a, having a good rebirth. Those worlds are filled with, with greed and with hatred and with violence and with anger and with pain and with suffering. Very difficult to develop wholesome karma, wholesome states of mind there. It takes a very long time to again have the opportunity for a, for a happy rebirth. A lot of suffering in samsara. It's a very heavy place when it is not understood, when we are subject mechanically to the whirlwind aspect. We are all trailing an infinite amount of past karma, both wholesome and unwholesome. And as long as we don't understand the law, the Dharma, the way things are working, we are subject at any time to the coming to fruition of that whole vast accumulation of past activities. This is the burden we're carrying around. But we don't like to look at it. We don't like to, to see the state of, of pain and suffering involved in this samsaric existence. And especially in this country, in the West, there's very much of plastic diversions to keep our mind from seeing it. We don't even want to hear about it. 
We don't want to hear about pain. We dress up corpses as if they're going to a party. We don't look, we don't look at the fact of existence. We try to cover it all up to make believe that it's not there. Very unrealistic, very destructive because it keeps us in a state of sleep with regard to what's happening. And in the sleeping state, we are more than ever subject to the pain and suffering involved. There is an inherent painfulness in the very nature of existence, in the fact that it is all empty, all impermanent, nothing substantial there. We try desperately to hold on to different aspects of the mind-body process, or to people, or to situations, grasping at some, at some straw, as if that could bring us a lasting peace and happiness. Not understanding that the whole, the whole universe, mental and physical, is merely a flow of empty, impermanent process. Nothing there to hold on to. Full of suffering and pain to which we are very much subject. Birth is suffering. Disease is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering. Being, being with what we don't like is suffering. Being separated from, wh from what we like is suffering. <coughs> but we don't like to hear it, we don't like to face it. This is the first noble truth, the first truth of the Buddha a very realistic appraisal of what this whole, this whole round of existence is about. He did not stop there. If, if he had seen correctly this truth of suffering and not gone further, it would have been a rather gloomy prospect. Caught as we are in this, in this wheel of agony, through the power of his enlightenment. Not only was he able to see without, without bias, without, without colored glasses, to see clearly and directly the state of affairs, he was also able to penetrate into the causes of this suffering. The fact of pain and suffering exists. <coughs> what are the causes behind it? The causes are our attachment. We are clinging to our own agony because we don't see things clearly. We cling to the pain. We're grasping at the suffering, making it continue, continuing on this wheel. There are four basic kinds of attachments which are, which are such great chains, which keep us so bound to this wheel of suffering. 
And the first is attachment to sense desire, to sense pleasure. We take such delight in pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and pleasant smells and tastes and pleasant touch feelings. There is pleasure there. There are moments of pleasure. Very impermanent. Very momentary. And yet we, we become so infatuated with that sense pleasure that we grasp and cling for more and more. Not seeing that that very, that very grasping and clinging, which was in fact the very reason we, we took a body again and again and again. We have eyes because we wanted to see. We have ears because we wanted to hear. We have a body because we wanted to feel, to feel touch, pleasant touch sensations. Not understanding the, the overwhelming suffering and pain involved in all this, entranced by those moments, those momentary pleasures of the senses. So attached we are to them. It's a very great bondage. It's a chain which keeps us on this wheel of samsara. The example is given of just how we become entangled in sense pleasure. Of a monkey who was living high, high in the Himalayas, living in the forest, very free, very independent. He became curious about what was happening down below. So he comes down the mountain, and it seems that some hunter or trapper had laid a trap of tar, of the black pitch, in which, to, in which to catch animals. The monkey came down and had never seen it before, and he tested it with one, with one foot. And he put one foot in, and he got stuck. And in his effort to free himself, he puts his other foot in, trying to, trying to free the first, and of course both get stuck. And then the third and the fourth legs he puts into the tar trying to extricate himself from the situation and all get stuck. Very frantically, aware that he is caught helpless in the power of that trapper and hunter, he puts his, his head in it to, to pry himself out and his head gets stuck. Caught, bound, trapped. We enjoy one sense pleasure and perhaps experience some of the suffering involved in it. In an effort to get out of the suffering, we sink into another sense pleasure to forget about the suffering of the first, and we get more and more bound. And a third and a fourth. In an effort to escape suffering, we become more and more involved in it, because we don't understand how the law is working. Attachment to sense pleasure, clinging, grasping at these momentary pleasures is a very great bondage. It what, it's what keeps us in this cycle of life and death and rebirth on this wheel endlessly. The second great attachment we have is attachment to our beliefs and opinions. We have so many opinions about things. 
about things being right or wrong or, or good or bad. The opinions very much conditioned by our particular background and circumstances and education, but we cling so much to the opinions. It's as if we go around permanently with a pair of colored glasses, seeing the whole world through pink or green or blue, blue colored glasses, imagining the world to be that way. And so attached to those glasses that we can't take them off to see how things are free of bias. Attachment to belief and opinions is a very strong bondage, a very strong fetter, which keeps us from seeing things clearly. In the sutra of the third patriarch in China, two very beautiful lines. It says, do not seek the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. If we give up our attachment to our beliefs and opinions, the whole world is revealed. We need not make any special effort if we are seeing with a clear vision. And our vision can only be clear when we give up this attachment, this, this cherishing to our own particular way of looking at things, our particular, our particular opinions and ideas. The third great attachment <coughs> is attachment to rites and rituals as a way of reaching enlightenment, freedom. We light some incense in front of the Buddha and do a few prayers, and he will take care of us. Or we put some flowers behind, in front of the picture of some great saint or guru, and everything is okay. Or we make a trip to India and take a bath in the Ganges, and all our sins are purified, and enlightenment is bound to come. A very, very great hindrance this attachment to that kind of adherence to ceremony and ritual as being, as being the means, being the way to enlightenment, to freedom. And the fourth great attachment, which is at the very center of all the others, which is the very hub of the whole wheel of samsara, that, that attachment around which the whole, the whole wheel of suffering revolves is the attachment to the idea of self, the idea of I, of me or mine. And in truth, the whole world does revolve about that concept. All beings in this world and in, and in all worlds live their lives based around this idea that there is a self here, there is an I. If there is an I, there is an other, there is division, there is separation. There is threatening and defensiveness. There is anger and desire. Possessiveness, attachment, all for the well-being 
of this non-existent self. Self is a concept only, but a concept which is so deeply ingrained, a concept with which we are so, so heavily conditioned to believe in, this concept of I, that it keeps us very bound to the wheel of samsara, to the wheel of suffering. And there is a very pithy epigram which relates this idea of I and self to the fact of suffering. And it is, as long as there is any one to suffer, he will. (laughs) It's a very strong bondage our attachment to the concept very difficult to penetrate, very difficult to get beyond. And very much of the path towards freedom and enlightenment has to do with seeing into the nature of that concept, freeing ourselves from its bondage. The truth of suffering The second noble truth is the causes of suffering, these attachments. Attachments to sense desire, to opinion, to rites and rituals, to the the concept of self. Four great bonds. (coughs) The power of the Buddha's enlightenment consisted of the fact that he was able to see clearly both the first and the second truths, the fact of suffering and the causes behind it. But also if it had rested there, if it had remained there, it would not have been so helpful to us. Here is suffering and here are the causes and what do we do? The third noble truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering, the ending of this pain, the release, the freedom, the peace, the state of nirvana, that state which is off this wheel. And that is to be understood in two ways. In one way, nirvana means the extinction of defilements, the extinction in the mind of greed, of hatred, of delusion, the putting out of the fires of the mind, the coolness, the ease, the peace of a mind free of these unwholesome states. And that kind of nirvana is a very moment-to-moment possibility. Every moment that we are experiencing, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, we are in a state of momentary nirvana, of momentary peace. (coughs) Nirvana is to also be understood as the cessation of this whole mind-body impermanent process. That state which exists, which is when this process stops. 
And the experience of that kind of cessation of this process of suffering is an experience of release, of putting down the burden, of silence, the highest happiness. It's a state of rest. In India, in the mountains, most of the means of conveying things up the mountain is human power, body power. And you see these incredibly old, very decrepit-looking men and women carrying the most unbelievable burdens up these mountains. 30 feet long beams of wood strapped to their backs with ropes, climbing a very steep mountain, this being the way to earn enough money to eat that day. The burden of having to carry that up the mountain and the feeling of ease when that burden can be taken off. This mind-body process is like carrying that unbelievable load up this very difficult place. Such a heavy burden we are carrying around. And the bliss of putting the burden down. The bliss of release from pain and suffering. Like being consumed with an with an overwhelming, agonizing pain in the body, day and night, around which all our energy and attention focuses, filled with this excruciating pain, and then in a moment, the pain dissipates, the pain goes away. The feeling of relief, of ease, of happiness. This mind-body process in comparison to that state of rest is like this overwhelming, consuming pain. The third noble truth is the ending of that pain, the bliss of, of peace and of silence and of rest, the putting down of the burden, the very highest happiness. The fourth noble truth is the way the path, how to do it. It's not that some being up in the sky determines this person gets enlightened and this person goes to hell. There is a path. There is a path leading to hell and a path leading to enlightenment. And each of us is free to choose which path we walk upon. If we walk upon the path to freedom, to peace, to silence of mind, the experience of that state happens. It is not any mystical mumbo-jumbo of appeasing certain beings or gods or whatever. If we cultivate the factors of enlightenment, when they reach maturity, that experience of freedom happens. The path is there for us to walk upon. And it has very much been described as the middle way. 
not overindulgence in sensual pleasures, which keeps, which keeps us very bound, not involved in self-torture or self-mortification to beat down the self, which does not exist in the first place. A very middle, balanced approach to living, not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with things, being fully aware, experiencing fully every moment. In that fullness and balance of mind, it is out of that state that enlightenment can happen. The state in which all suffering ceases. People are motivated to walk upon this path for very many different reasons. And one of the, the classic descriptions of motivation is that of the Buddha himself. The Bodhisattva, before he became Buddha, before he left his home, he was visited by three divine messengers, three messengers from heaven. And the circumstances of that visit were as follows. When he was born, when the Bodhisattva was born, it was predicted that he would either become a universal monarch, a world-turning emperor, or an all-enlightened Buddha. And of course, his father, being the king, wanted him to become the world-turning monarch, the emperor. He did not want him to, to become the Buddha. And he did everything possible to prevent this bodhisattva, this young prince, from seeing any suffering at all. And he created palaces for the rainy season and palaces for the summer and palaces for the winter season, filled with beautiful women and music and all the sense delights so that the, the bodhisattva would never feel dissatisfied. One day, this prince wanted to go out into the city to see what the outside life was all about. And the king ordered that the whole city should be made beautiful, all painted and with flowers and all kinds of unpleasant sights removed. And then the prince goes out. But three heavenly messengers came to see the prince. The first one was a very diseased being, a body who was just filled with disease. And the prince had never seen it. And he asked the person who was driving his chariot, what, what is happening there? And the charioteer explains that that's a body which has become ill, which has become sick. And the bodhisattva asked if that happens to everyone or it's just a, a unique thing. The charioteer answered that that's that's an inevitable consequence of having a body, that it will become diseased. He goes a little further and he sees a very old, decrepit man bent over, who can't see and who can't hear, very, very much subject to the infirmities of old age. And again, the Bodhisattva asks what's, what's happening. And the charioteer replies that anybody who takes birth is going to get to the state of an infirm body, of a body beginning to decay, where the faculties are not working, and that it happens to everyone. He goes a little further and he sees a corpse. And again he asks, and again the charioteer replies, that that is the end for all beings, that no one escapes the fact of death 
This is the first time the Buddha, the, the Bodhisattva, had ever seen these things. And it touched within him lifetime after lifetime of work on himself and, and the development of compassion. And he felt overwhelming compassion for the suffering involved for all beings and the desire to find a way out of the suffering. These were the three heavenly messengers which came to him and which prompted him later to, to renounce the whole household scene he was in to search for a way out of suffering, to search for a way of enlightenment and peace. These three heavenly messengers are all around us. Mostly we don't pay them heed. And in a lot of the Tibetan tradition, a lot of the stories involved in it, of people dying and coming before Yama, the god of death, having to account for their deeds. And, and Yama says, weren't you aware of the three messengers I sent to you? And most people are not. Most people never reflect, never, never take seriously these facts of our life. Okay, that's one very strong motivation for walking on the path, both to ease our own suffering and to be a help to all other beings out of compassion for the suffering of all beings to seek a way to the end of suffering. But there are other motivations, and the motivation does not really matter. There is one story of a cousin of the Buddha. After the Buddha's enlightenment in Bodh Gaya, he went back to his hometown, and many of his relatives and family and people in, in his home city very much impressed and in awe of the Buddha's enlightenment, of his presence, became monks and nuns in the order. This cousin of his, it seems, just on the day the Buddha returned, was about to marry this beautiful princess, very much infatuated with this ravishing beauty. But out of respect for the Buddha, when the Buddha came to visit, this cousin of his took the Buddha's bowl and then, then returned with the Buddha to the forest, meaning to to give the bowl back to the Buddha, always waiting for the Buddha to take the bowl and say, okay, you may now go back to your beautiful princess. The Buddha never said that. <laughs> they just went back to the forest, the place they were staying. And then the Buddha said, wouldn't you like to become a monk? And of course, he did not want to become a monk at all. <laughs> but out of respect, the commanding presence of a being, a fully enlightened being, he agreed in the moment, and he became a monk, and he joined the order. But all the time he was a monk, he kept thinking of his, of his beautiful princess back in the palace who was waiting for him. He could not really do the monk trip very well. <laughs> and the Buddha knew. He knew what was happening. And he met with his cousin, and through his psychic power, through the power of, of his mind, the Buddha contrived for his cousin to have a vision of one of the heavenly worlds. 
And in this heavenly world, there were thousands and thousands of beautiful celestial nymphs. <laughs> and his cousin was overwhelmed. <laughs> and the Buddha said, who is more beautiful, these celestial nymphs or your princess back in the palace? And he said, compared to these celestial nymphs, my princess is like a monkey with her nose cut off. No comparison whatsoever. The Buddha said, if you follow my instructions, I promise you 500 <laughs> celestial nymphs. He made a bargain. His cousin agreed very quickly. So with this thought in mind, oh, I'm going to get all these nymphs. So he starts to practice. And he starts watching his breath and doing the walking and practicing mindfulness. No but he was practicing. The motivation was questionable. The practice was carried on in earnest. He practiced and he experienced the fruit of the practice. His mind had, had been very ripe. He had done very much work in the past. And his practice, his practice brought to maturity all those, all those factors of enlightenment. He practiced and he walked upon the path and he experienced enlightenment, freedom. And he went back to the Buddha then and said, you are released from your promise. I understand now. And the Buddha, of course, knew what had happened and, and said that as soon as his cousin had reached enlightenment, he knew that he was released from this promise provide all these nymphs. <laughs> the cousin's mind had become free. What motivates us to begin walking on the path does not really matter. Right? We have visions of celestial nymphs and we begin walking, it's fine. We have a very great vision of suffering and feelings of compassion and we begin walking, it's fine. The end of the path is freedom. It's open to all of us. All we have to do is begin the journey to be facing towards the light. And some people will progress slowly and some people will progress quickly and it does not matter. As long as we're going in the direction of enlightenment and freedom and peace, and that very much depends upon our own effort. We have to meditate. Today, before we begin walking, activity of mind, which is very important, very difficult to observe. And that is the intentions to do things. The body by itself does not act. It always acts in response to a mental volition to an intention to do something. And it's only when we become mindful on the intention level that we really have freedom of action, that is, choosing what we're going to do or not do. If we're not aware of the intention, the intention arises, the body acts all mechanically. Right? No, no detachment there, no freedom. Intention comes to take some food, the hand reaches out, the food gets stuffed in, all unmindfully. If there's awareness of the intention, oh, intending to take food, right? right there with that degree of mindfulness, 
we're free to choose whether, one, whether we want to do it or not, or not. Intentions to speak, intentions to move. We should become very tuned, very aware of that level of mental activity. It gives a great deal of space, of inner space. Intentions are not always thoughts in the mind. They're not always words going on in the mind. Often it's just a signal. Okay, some kind of mental urge, mental movement. Some signal in the mind to stand, right? Or to begin walking. Sometimes it comes in the, in the way of thoughts or words. We should add these, these intentions to, to our... The intention to begin walking and then the walking. In the walking meditation, there is no need to pick up the intention involved in each step. Right? Once you begin walking, just be with the, the up, forward, down movement. But before stopping, there should be the awareness of the intention to stop, the intention to turn, the intention to sit down. Okay? Slowly, as the mind picks up these signals before the action, we'll find ourselves in a very, in a very freeing space of mind. Right? It's very open then. Is there intending to have a thought? Sometimes. Like we can sit down and intend to think about something. Sometimes thoughts just come very uncalled for, unasked for. Right? Okay, we'll walk for about 20 minutes. Any questions? Yes. yes. Uh, is your office open today from 2 to 4? Yes. Okay, because I have so many questions I can't express. Okay. Sh Sharon is in the office. Oh, when, when would you be free? Would you be free at all? We can, if you see me after, we can make an appointment. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Although Sharon knows the same things. But <laughs> it, right, it's the, <laughs> there is one dharma. Third noble truth, second type of nirvana, uh, the cessation of mind body. Um, you, you said that one comes to a state of rest, and one. And I was wondering, again, this raises a question about the, uh, the Tantrika, who, I use the analogy, reaches the top of the mountain that has no alternative but to return down the mountain to help other people come back up. I got the impression from what you're saying that when does the cessation of the experience of mind-body suffering, and one goes into uh, a bliss or the end of this suffering, does that mean that one does not return to help other sentient no, beings? No, not at all. The experience of that cessation, in the beginning, is just a moment, right? just an instant realization of that, of that state. Right? The effect of that moment has a, has a profound uh, relevance to the ongoing process, right? It's like a bolt of lightning which eradicates certain defilements from the mind. A person with 
highly developed concentration can then go into that state again at will. Right? But it's not a question of once you experience it, you stay in that place for the rest of your life. Not at all. The Buddha experienced enlightenment and for 45 years went around teaching. But then does the... My question was that um, then does the Buddha, like after having finished his karma for 45 years here, then kind of just space out and just... There's, there's a nice Zen story. Somebody came to this Zen master who was taking a living Buddha, okay, an enlightened being. And somebody comes and asks him, what happens to an enlightened being, or what happens to a Buddha when he dies? Okay? And the master says, you better go ask an enlightened being. Okay? And this, this person says, oh, but I thought you were. I thought you were a living Buddha. And he said, but I haven't died yet. <laughs> Wait and see. You know, it's a bit premature to think of... It sounds ridiculous, and to, to play a game of trying to figure that one out. But in my mind, the question keeps coming up with Trungpa talking about the Tantrika returns, and then there are other stories about the... and then maybe misconceptions about enlightenment, that the being finds release from this world of existence and goes beyond the sixth realm, and just enters into the state of non-existence. I mean, there is no returning to this plane or any plane. It's just, it's over with. And that didn't seem to fit into the idea of the Tantrika returning out of compassion to say sentient beings. There are many, there are many levels of spiritual evolution, okay? At very many of them, one experiences stages of insight or enlightenment or freedom. <coughs> and uses that insight and out of compassion comes to serve all other beings. Right? It may be that there are levels of freedom and enlightenment which a person may experience at the time of death from which there is no continuing of this cycle of rebirth. Okay, a lot of what a lot of what Rinpoche has been talking about are a whole class of beings at some particular stage of enlightenment who are using that enlightenment out of compassion for all beings to to come and serve. Right? But have not necessarily completed their own. All this is speculation, right? The important thing is for us to to walk on the path, and when we get to those levels, we will understand what, what they're about. Well, it wasn't my concern to get to that level. It was just the fact that hearing Rinpoche talk about someone returning out of compassion and then other traditions of things saying, you just kind of space out and it's over. And wondering, I guess I was into comparing traditions and trying to figure out mm -hmm. what path I'd like, or, or whatever tradition I'd like to use to be. There is only one tradition to follow. And that is the moment-to-moment -moment awareness of what's happening, right? Free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. And all the rest are great superstructures built about that very simple purification process. In that process of cleansing, of 
non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, the Dharma will unfold. Right? It's a very great attachment, this attachment to belief, right, of any kind. It's not so helpful to get caught up in this conceptualizing about what happens to Buddhas and enlightened beings and it's right now that everything's happening and right now that the Dharma is unfolding for us. The motivation It's very much a, a uh, sparking action. The actual, the actual walking on the path, you cannot be attached to anything. It's very much the experience of what's happening moment to moment. Right? If you're sitting thinking, oh, I want nirvana, I want nirvana, I want to get out of this, it's useless. That's not the way. That concept can be a push to get started. Once one gets started, it's a process of making the mind quiet, right? A quiet mind which is silently observing, experiencing all phenomena fully, free of concept. All the concepts that we use, all the words that are being talked about in class and in books, are merely signals for us to begin to observe ourselves. Right? We should not cling to the words or concepts. Or they're merely to be used in such a way that we begin to observe, we begin to get grounded in the present moment, experiencing everything fully, without greed and without hatred and without delusion. Right? Absolutely. Everything comes. There's one of the factors of mind we discussed was the factor of feeling, meaning the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neither. And as we just open up to the flow of things, sometimes there's going to be pain, painful feeling, sometimes there's going to be pleasant feeling, right? We experience each as they come with a total wakefulness. It's not the pushing away or suppressing, I don't want to feel pleasure, you know, and I'm going to, it's not that at all. It's experiencing what comes very fully without clinging to the pleasant, without condemning the unpleasant, because they are both impermanent. It's all part of a flow. And it's just becoming one with this flow, right? Unfolding. Oh, sure. Everybody does. Attachment does not add anything to the pleasure at all. In fact, it's a rather diminishing of it. Right? If we're really open, we just experience fully. I had an experience I'd like you to respond to. I'm not sure even whether I have a question that's involved in it. About 10 years ago, I was quite sick. Uh, I don't know what the actual illness was, but I was sick and I was quite weak. And there was a point at which I knew that all of my, quote, life was somehow irrelevant. Everything that was outside of the moment of being in this particular bed and really feeling incredibly weak 
was somehow irrelevant, so I was very much focused on where I was. I was very conscious of being very sick and not so far away from death. I, I had gone down, quote, in the well, pretty far down into it. I didn't think I was going to die, but I wasn't so sure. And I found myself wanting to be well. You know, really, that whole willpower, I want to be well, I want to heal myself, I want to consider. And then I realized, in the process of that willing and that wishing and that, that you know, churning up that whole thing, that I realized that I was going to be well and that I was also going to get sick again. As I remembered having been sick many, many times in my life, there's something very familiar about it in some way. And I felt trapped. I felt just incredibly trapped, both because there was no escape in being healthy because I knew sickness would come and that there was no escape in sickness because health was going to come. And I just found myself bound in that. And somehow that seems very much relevant to, to what you, you talk of. I wonder if you could just say something about that, because I think many of us have experienced that, if not in those words. That whole anxiety of mind about both alternatives very much is bound to the idea that there is someone who's going to die or someone who's going to get healthy, right? Because we have not developed insight into the emptiness of phenomena, emptiness of self, right? So we get anxious. We get anxious about the supposed I dying or getting healthy to again get sick, but actually there is no one there. In some sense, that's like identifying with a gasoline that's in my tank. It's going to empty out and then be filled up and then empty out and get filled up, which really I don't take terribly personally. Because it doesn't hurt. Well, whatever. I don't know the because, although that, I'm sure that's part of it, because I don't identify with the, the emptiness of the tank. But we very much identify with this mind-body process, and it becomes the cause of all that all those anxieties, and all based on a concept, not something which is actually there. This idea of I. Just another little piece in relation to that is I'm remembering last session, Ram Dass telling the story, I think, about uh, Aldous Huxley dying, and where he said, how extraordinary, his toe losing feeling and just and that somehow that's the difference between the identification with the body. But also we have to be very careful, very subtle identification, not only of the body, but of the knowing process itself with consciousness, which is also not I or self, merely an empty process going on. I, I would tend to see that as being an evolution, somehow a, a lighter identification. With consciousness? Huxley's identification. It's a more subtle one, I think. The, the... <coughs> oh, anyway. Uh, is this a different book of the dead? Is that speculation or is that actual account of an experiential Well, it's certainly speculation for me. <laughs> I, it may not be for others. <laughs> Also, the, the whole tenor of the book 
is not to cling and not to condemn, right? Not to be drawn by desire, not to be frightened by fearful things, not to have aversion. It's the same process, regardless of the metaphor describing it, right? The same balance of mind, because there is one way to enlightenment. And the one way does not involve any particular path or technique or description, but in a balance of mind, right? The mind that is, is perfectly poised, not clinging, not condemning, not identifying. And that's what the whole book is about. It, within a particular descriptive context, right? Isn't it about a more uh, moment-to-moment uh, gap in rebirth, other than just physical gap? question I think it's it would be a mistake to confuse instinct with mindfulness okay very many uh, I would say probably most animals are operating on a very instinctive level that is there's a certain a certain stimulus on the outside and there's an instinctive response okay very much of that instinctive response is involved with greed and hatred. And it's very interesting. Westerners have a very romanticized view of animal life because of the rather extraordinary treatment we give to our pets, right? Who live far better than most other people in the world. But when you see animals, even I was in this monastery in Thailand for a while. There were a lot of dogs around. and. They were all pretty well fed. You know, a lot of the food from the monastery went to the dogs. So they were not they were not in a starving condition at all. But as soon as some food was put down, there was such an incredible dis- display of the factor of hatred. This whole pack of dogs started snarling at one another and in an effort to get the food, right? You can just you could just see the the hatred and greed of the mind involved, right? Here we don't see it so often because we buy 25 pounds of dog food and, you know, present it to this one dog. <laughs> Animals very much lead a life of fear. I mean, just, just watch it. Any, any chipmunk or any animal, immediately, as soon as there's an impingement, you know, on their senses, immediately alerted to the possibility of danger of being eaten. There's a lot of unwholesome states of mind on the instinctual level, which is why it is so difficult to get out of that state. Only very few examples, like Lassie. (laughs) 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 Bodhisattva-like beings. (laughs) It's not the normal state, right? The second question about who sent these heavenly messengers, 
they are, they are an expression of the law of the Dharma. No one has to send disease, old age, and death. They are part of the process. Right? The, the expression heavenly messenger is, is a metaphor for, for using these facts of existence to see things clearly. Right? They're there, they're with us all the time. But we do a good job of covering. For you, is the idea of rebirth speculation? Okay, it can be understood in a few ways. First, it can be understood as part of the process that is happening moment to moment. Because, in fact, consciousness and the object are arising, are being born and dying every instant. There is nothing carried over. Okay? And that can be experienced. You can experience that arising and passing away moment to moment. There are people who, through psychic power, through development of samadhi, have the ability to see into past lives, to see the process. Right? Not only in the Buddhist time, but many people all the way up till now and, and today also have this ability of mind. Okay, those are two ways of understanding it. A third way is just a kind of intuitive feeling for it, which a person may or may not have. Right? And I know when I, f when I first got into, into the Dharma, I was very skeptical. It, it just, it was so out of the cultural conditioning. And a lot of questions about it. And, but just as the practice evolved, there seems to be growing a more intuitive acceptance of that possibility. Right? not based on any experience of, of past lives or anything, but just an understanding of how the process is working now, it seems to make sense. The belief or not belief in it has nothing to do with getting enlightened. Well, it's a, the question was whether the consciousness of the world that I think was, was it increasing now? There is an interesting prophecy which was made and which was not only in Tibet but in Burma and in several countries in Asia. The prophecy was that 2,500 years after the Buddha, for a hundred year period there would be a great flourishing of the Dharma. Right? The, the Dharma was very strong, of course, in the Buddhist time and in the immediate the following years, and then began to decline. Right? People were not practicing so much. And declining and declining, and the prophecy was that in the 2500 year, that, that period, which we are in right now, there will be a great resurgence of, of interest in the Dharma. And it certainly seems to be happening. You know, it's just amazing the, the energy for understanding that is happening. You know, within the last few years, it's just... The prophecy is that it, it also is impermanent, that this flourishing is going to happen for a hundred year period and again decline. So we are extremely fortunate. I mean, we're, it's a very precious opportunity that, that is presenting itself. We're in the hundred years right now. Right. Very much at the beginning of it. 
And you can see it happening. Uh, it seems quite apparent that there's this tremendous interest now in the Dharma. Mm-hmm. About, uh, Maitreya, supposed to come. I think okay, the, I, can, I can pass on the traditional belief. Maitreya is the next Buddha to be. And supposedly he's hanging out in one of the heaven worlds, waiting for the time to take rebirth. The life cycles of people, the lifespans of people go in cycles. Okay, when people are living rightly, the lifespan gets longer. When people are living immorally, the lifespan gets shorter. It is said that Maitreya will come when the lifespan of people goes down to 10 years of age and again comes back up to a very long, thousands of years or something, right? That, that kind of evolutionary development. It's a long time. And he's going to say exactly the same thing as the last one. I'm coming up the mountains and beginning to feel that I have a cane or a guide. But I'm wondering, what, um, might Jesus be of help to? <laughs> <laughs> very, very many teachers have, have been of very great help to many beings. It's important, I think, to hear the Dharma of all the teachers rather than to get involved in the personality, right? Because then one can get trapped by an exclusiveness. There is one Dharma, there is one truth, and it has been expressed in very many ways. Right. So we should hear the Dharma in all teachers. Right. <laughs> um, can you tell us something about Rinpoche's uh, words on cynicism? and that, that no truth can be established without a corresponding point of view. And it's not that we're, to, we're not to be conned, and it's not that we're to seek out falsehood or seek out the falsehood of some statement, but we're supposed to seek out the point of view of that statement. And does that point of view actually exist? And is that kind of a speaking? That whole question of cynicism or gullibility, you know, of systems or ideas or teachings, dissolves in a state of a silent mind. Right? There is no question at all of, of holding on to beliefs or, or rejecting beliefs when the mind is quiet, when there are no beliefs going on in the mind. right? And the whole path very much involves getting to that place of silent observation where one sees the process free of conceptualizing about it. Just, just to be aware of the processes of mind and body going on without any conceptual framework whatsoever. And then all the problems relating to the concepts disappear. They're not very, they're not very important or relevant in that place of mind. And it's precisely for that reason why the practice of meditation, of mindfulness, is so... That's the essence of the Dharma, not all these words. Right? Uh, you said in, in a previous talk that um, 
always lectured that suffering, like physical suffering can be a great teacher. And I, and I feel like I'm having a problem because I have something wrong with me that I'm aware of. And I go through stages where my mind becomes totally unaware of it and I feel very light. And other times when I feel like my mind is constantly thinking about it and relating to everything I'm doing in relationship to it and trying to think of some way or some doctor or something to do to get rid of it. And, mm -hmm. and, and I don't really know much beyond that of, of, of what you mean by saying, using it as something that can be a good teacher to you. Well, that's not the way to use it, to be thinking about how to get rid of it. Right? The way pain and suffering is a very great object of meditation, first of all, because it's so strong, our attention does not wander very much. When you're sitting there with a pain in your leg, you're with it. I mean, there's no escape from it. You know, it's a very strong object. If the mind remains balanced behind it, that is not condemning it, not identifying with it, but really penetrating into the process of pain, you can get enlightened watching that pain. Right? The mind gets so centered on it, very relaxed, very balanced behind it, very easy, very silent, just seeing the process of the painful sensation. Not with the, not with the thought of, oh, it's so bad and I want to get rid of it. That's an imbalance of mind. Which is not to say... Right. Which is what I'm becoming aware of. Right. Lest anybody misunderstand, it's not to say that we have to go seeking painful objects. You can get enlightened by watching happiness as well. <laughs> Everything is impermanent. So all objects are equal, equally useful for developing insight. Because insight means seeing the flow of impermanence. Right? When the pain is there, we should be with the pain. When lightness or happiness is there, we should be with the lightness and happiness. Right? Not condemning the pain, not attached to the happiness, but seeing the process, seeing how it's all in flow. Uh, That's okay too. You know, we don't have to. We don't have to uh, become passive with regard to to dealing with with the situations of our life. In the process of meditation, when you're sitting down and you get a pain in the leg, it's not so useful to be thinking of which doctor I'm going to go to. You know, it's a good opportunity. It's like that story of the, the tiger, you know, the guy being eaten by the tiger. Every opportunity is a useful one for developing insight. Okay? I'm still having trouble handling that. It seems like we're projecting our human traits qualities on the animal world. Um, for instance, a chipmunk who is running around scaring the people off by, it doesn't seem that he's in fear. It seems as though he's just reacting and he's totally in the moment. And it seems to me fear is a human quality when we begin to fantasize about what can happen to us. And the same thing with hatred. It seems that animals react on the gut level totally as a whole being. But, right. That delusion, it seems that their perception is very clear. Uh, I mean, sense-wise. And it seems like we're projecting all our negative qualities on them. It seems like they're pretty much in harmony. I think there's a confusion of, of terms in that one can be completely in the moment without any detachment whatsoever, right? Just like one does not have to, to believe any of this, it has been my observation anyway, which may be faulty or not. But just go out and observe animals 
with as, with as free a mind as possible of any concept, right? And just see, you know, what seems to be happening. But also it doesn't matter. <coughs> you know, the important thing is what we're experiencing right now. It, it's not so crucial for our enlightenment whether, whether animals are experiencing fear or not. It's an interesting question, and it's, it might be interesting just to, to make that kind of observation, right? But it's not so important to get hung up on it, because it's not so relevant to our experience in the moment. Ceremony and ritual can be very beautiful, right? And it can be a means for developing mindfulness, right? It's the mindfulness which leads one towards enlightenment, not the ceremony, right? Very often people confuse those two and think that because they do something, right, that's going to save them. Not seeing that it's only if it's done with a certain balance of mind, a certain clarity of mind, that that's what's wholesome, that's what's enlightening. And also a lot of people who are invo very involved in ceremony and ritual, it often comes to a point of great mechanicalness. Okay, you're sitting and you're doing your little puja, and the mind is a thousand miles away. Right? That's not so useful. Right. If it develops one-pointedness, concentration is one factor of enlightenment. Right? It's a useful thing to cultivate. <coughs> Devotion is a spiritual faculty. I which want it to sound as if that wasn't useful. I mean, as you were about it, that question came up, that was not a useful part of it. No, it can, it can be. Depends how it's done. Right? If it's done as a blind adherence to a particular ceremony or ritual, thinking that that's what's going to enlighten, then it's a great attachment. If it's done as a vehicle for developing wholesome states of mind, it's beautiful. I mean, it, there was one very nice Zen in California. I went to this, uh, I think it's called the Green Gulch. Mm -hmm. And they have, they have one center there. They had like groups sitting every week or something. And there were these people who were at the, you know, staying there, residents. And the Zen tradition is very filled with, with ceremony and precision of action. And it's very nice. I mean, it's really, it's very mindful action. And this one guy was walking around, and there's a lot of bowing. Right? And you bow to the <coughs> pillow, and you bow to the wall. And this guy was going into the bathroom, and he was bowing to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I thought that was a little extreme, but actually, it, it's very beautiful. You know, it's a constant reminder. It's a constant exercise in mindfulness. So there's... There are many ways to develop it, right? Okay, that's... It's the mindfulness which is important, right? Not the, not the concepts generating it. Right? Just that state of open awareness, 
of what one is doing in the present moment. It's mantra, by the way, is has nothing to do with Hinduism or Buddhism. There, there are many mantras in all traditions. Mantra generally is used for the development of samadhi because it's giving the mind a single object to focus on, right? It is not primarily developing mindfulness, although there is some degree of mindfulness present. The kind of awareness that we want to develop is very much a moment-to-moment, not on a fixed object, but on each object as it presents itself. Okay? The use of mantra very much makes the mind concentrated and one-pointed, and it can then be used to develop this moment-to-moment awareness. Okay. We have to meditate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.